Welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Marmalade Sky is the name of a band that doesn't exist, but nevertheless conjures an early 90s alt feeling. The richness of this small detail, and many others, musical or otherwise, reverberate throughout the excerpt of Doxology, Nell Zink's latest novel that appears in the July issue. I spoke to Zink from her home in Bad Belzig, Germany, about her search for those details, her creative process, and what America looks like from abroad. I wanted to ask how literal the title of this new book, Doxology, is. Um, you've spoken about growing up in, in church and sort of had this idea of God as being the single audience. And in your other novels, like Wall Creeper, which you wrote for one person in particular, or Private Novelist, which is your fake translation of a book by your friend, sort of written for your friend. When you're writing, do you imagine one person that you're writing to? Or is it just, um, is this sort of a broader idea of who or what is being addressed? Well, at this point, I've been publishing for so long that I, I, I think of a, a broader public even when I'm just thinking about what kind of project I want to do next. I think I know I'm not writing just for some friend. You know, I know, you know, if I'm lucky, thousands of people will read it. Uh, so, and God is not one of them. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> You tend to have this very pragmatic way of talking about your career as a writer. You spoke about in Wall Creeper sort of writing about sex to sort of help sell the book as opposed to well, writing about violence. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a really fluffy idealist as an artist. Yes. But well, yes, publishing, is, publishing is not the same thing as writing. Yes. Yes. I, that's sort of what I'm trying to get at, because you you kind of make these jokes about pleasing the mass market to sell some books. And yet your your fiction is very experimental, very well written. It's not like a mass market paperback, uh, like some det- detective novel series or something. It's a it's very excellent literature. So. How do you balance that pragmatism with being a completely serious artist and having this idea about what makes great art? I don't balance it myself. My personality does that for me. Uh, that sounds kind of weirdly snobby, but it's the sad truth. I, you know, God knows I've tried to be conventionally successful in more arenas than you can imagine, but I never managed it. And so I know when I sit down to write a really just straight up Booker Prize winning crossover bestseller, you know, I, I, I can be fairly confident it's not going to happen. So uh, the, the, I'm, I'm like not just rebellious, I'm kind of micro and nano rebellious. I, I can't get through a single sentence with an entirely straight face. Yet, I, you know, I take life itself very seriously and I take art very seriously. And that's one of the reasons I see this constant disjuncture between even my own ambitions and reality, the world and uh, the world's ambitions and so on. So I don't, that, that kind of irony is always there for me. I, I can't get past it. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm condemned to write great literature against... Uh, even against my own will. <laughs> that tension is definitely there in 
this. I mean, there's care and warmth to the characters, but there is that level of irony or absurdity to every moment that is very indicative of just sort of being a person existing in the world. You know, like when you're talking about Daniel's or rather Daniel's inherited, let's say, relationship to Israel and that the Canadian engineer who decided to help Saddam build a big cannon, uh, quote, just up just up and died of gunshot wounds in Brussels. Like, that's just such a, such a very cruel absurdity of modern life, but then also, like, keen understanding that these sort of disjuncts happen all the time is just part of us existing. Well, I think if you describe life more or less the way it is, it, it just tends to sound like you're being cruel and satirical and, and kidding people. Um, that's what makes a conventional novel conventional is uh, the way cliches and uh, you know mythological archetypes are implemented and employed completely shamelessly to, to make uh, predictable things happen. And so, so if you're making a good faith effort to write realism, which believe it or not is what I'm doing, you know, you end up, you, you end up just, I mean, I, I mean, at this point in 2019, it's, it's plain to more people than ever, I think, that the world is, is becoming a satire of itself. But that's something that's, I think, been pretty plain for a long time, if, if, to people who were paying attention. Yeah, I mean, as someone who has lived abroad for over 20 years, what is it like to sort of watch this, as you just said, the emergence of how um, absurd life can be and, you know, things like the concentration camps at the southern border or Donald Trump, like, getting a bunch of tanks to help celebrate the 4th of July, like, it's a total normal, not fascist thing. Like it's just for children to appreciate in some way, like this kind of the insanity of now. Well, I think one, one thing that's different now is simply that all this stuff gets documented because everyone carries a little uh, video camera in his pocket or in their pocket or whatever. Um, so, so it used to be evil people would just count on their implausibility as a defense. You know, if, if someone told you, if there were no pictures, just said, oh, by the way, we're housing little children in concentration camps uh, with your taxpayer money. I mean, you just think, no, 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 you've got to be kidding. That's, that would be a very natural reaction. And the fact simply that uh, you don't need like courageous activists uh, with a hidden camera and a handbag anymore. You just need any normal person. Like, there's a whole lot of reality <laughs> becoming public that, you know, probably similar things have been going on for a long time. Like, you know, the conditions in American prisons, the, the way the poor live, you know, it's always been there, you know, black and white, you know, generally in prose, which takes time to read and, and can be denied. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting moment we're living in. Yeah, and what is so compelling about 
this shortened version of your novel is that there's something so naive about the early 90s and, you know, the conversation that the characters have about what could happen in the first Iraq war is, it is so sweet that they might think that, but then the region did actually collapse. So, and this is mentioned in the, the story, I mean, there was the, you know, AIDS was happening, there was tons of crime, but still there, it feels like there's significantly less of a mess than things are now. Well, I mean, AIDS was 10 years old at that point. There was starting to be a little bit, bit of hope about it. And the, the early 90s, you know, after the Soviet Union collapsed, everybody just thought there was going to be a peace dividend, that all the money that, that the United States had been spending on, you know, 40,000 atom bombs, however many, was going to be spent on social programs and infrastructure and the arts. People really believe that. And um, also, there was hope for peace in the Middle East, which is a very big deal. You know, the Oslo Accords were fresh and still happily believable. It, so the movie was different, and I think for perfectly valid reasons. I mean, if, unless you were like one of those Dr. Strangelove or Dr. No, <laughs> Blofeld-type people who knew the truth. <laughs> but for, for the rest of us, civilians on the ground, it was just, uh, it, was, it was a time when people were making happy plans for the future. And I guess that hopefulness, how did you reconnect and build a world out of it? Because everything feels so vivid, you know, right down to the the bands that they're talking about, you know, the idea that somebody is choosing to blast the residents at 8 a.m. for their morning show and on college radio is such an evocative, real thing. And it says so much about the characters. So was there any music or books or films that you revisited while writing this? No, I just went delving deep into my own mind, just thinking, okay, what were those years like? What was really on people's minds? Because there, there tends to be an overlay of mythology and, uh, and you know, myth-making, things that the past gets organized into a narrative as time goes on, and then somebody writes the Wikipedia article that is then considered authoritative, everybody quotes it. I have to ignore that stuff completely and think about, okay, what was I really hearing who were the real people I knew, and and, and one thing that was uh, that's still very clear to me is just the uh, the isolation uh, between subcultures at that time. Mm. There wasn't this constant communication online, where people were you could just go online and be exposed to another subculture. It didn't happen. You had to go meet those people and and hang out with them to find out what movies they liked or what what uh, music they liked. So. I mean, it was partly just my own experience, for example, of being, I was a, you know, as a post-punk musician playing guitar in a band, but we had, like, one friend, and he happened to live in California at the time, who liked Nirvana, which to us was like this sort of bad metal band, <laughs> that's all I knew about it, and, there, and then, like, Nirvana had this huge hit, and we were like, Nirvana? So we, like, went upstairs to the neighbor, who had a job, like, programming in-flight music for Eastern Airlines, 
and collected pop records and said, hey, do you have that Nirvana record? And he's like, oh yeah, I have the Nirvana record. And, and, so, and so we borrowed it and listened to it and gave it back. And, and I mean, just when, when you think about that entire procedure, the fact that a physical object was borrowed from the upstairs neighbor, it's so alien to how things work now. Yeah. Um, that that it, it fascinates me. It, it just fascinates me. And, um, and, and I know some people, maybe, I imagine probably younger people reading the book will think, well, everybody knows life was like that. But uh, I guess maybe it's more interesting to me <laughs> to somebody who is there. No, I mean, I mean, part of what is fascinating is that it's not that long ago that all that this enorm- no. that n- none of this is that long ago and yet it's like the difference between the 1950s and the 1850s where it's like wait what there's television <laughs> now like it's such a it, it but it it was only like 20 years instead of 100 years and this weird accelerationism of technology and how it just remaps not only how we interact with each other but just how we think and then the physical spaces of a city i mean today i just saw a report that there's been this huge uptick in pedestrian deaths because of cars as well as um cyclist deaths and that's largely because everybody is getting their stuff delivered directly from some boutique grocery service or and they're going places in Ubers and Lyfts and other car services like that. So there's way more traffic and therefore a 50% increase or something like that in fatalities, which is crazy, but that's the reality. That's really sad. Yeah. America, you're missing out. (laughs) 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 Um, I know that you worked on a, you mentioned that you were, in a band, but you, I know you worked on a punk zine and zines were sort of like pre-internet that that was sort of the main way to create networks with people who were, you know, interested in the same things you were, but were probably in other cities or other countries and definitely a mode of creative expression that the web sort of gets at, but not really. So can you talk about your experience working on a zine roughly during this time as networking i mean don't forget there was you know also political activism and i and one thing that's really striking to me is just back when real effort was involved in becoming politically active i think you would just be shocked at how few people were active i mean i had friends um who were in the 80s interested in philippines in uh solidarity with the troubled uh, minorities of the Philippines. And, and one of them told me he, he had tracked down about five people in the United States <laughs> who, who weren't Filipino and were interested in uh, getting involved in any way. You know, maybe they were out there and there's just no way to find them. Uh, with Zine, simply because it was a cultural thing, that was politically entirely neutral. So you could get all the zines together in one place in this magazine, Fact Sheet 5, and just look and see, oh, oh look, there's one about a, that has bands I like. Okay, I'll, I'll write to them or send them a dollar or something. So people would you know, trade each other's zines. But the truth is my zine had a circulation of about 80 
um, people would people would consistently fail to believe this when I told them. There'd be like guys in bands would be like, no, no, why did you write about our band? Please write about my band. They'd be like, I have a circulation of 80. Why should you care? <laughs> um, and I was constantly getting sent zines by by young women whose whose uh, publications had circulations in the hundreds or thousands. And and it just made me laugh because the reasons were so obvious. Because it'd be like some fifteen-year-old girl writing about her budding sexuality, complete with photographs. <laughs> and so okay, you know, she's getting some readership. Um, and and my scene was just my my scene was very much rated G G for good, and, uh, just so good. And um, you know, very, very sort of literary. I, I think in some, it's, it's some pieces were really exquisitely well written, and then um, with this very noble aim, which was that we would, I would write about uh, the most hard music combined with combined with the softest animals. I mean, the other thing that kind of is related but maybe isn't related to the time that we're talking about and the narrative is definitely shaped by this but you seem to have this very exquisite understanding of how people just kind of bullshit with each other and sort of how these ideas sprint you know how something will else will be happening inside but they will totally naturally say something completely contrary to what they're feeling where i mean aside from sort of your own memories how did you shape the narrative along that sort of um that line like who these people are i guess like how they how they sort of move through the world and make mistakes and come together or fall apart aesthetically as i was writing that was a very deliberate choice because um i don't want to call it experimental because it was it's not like I, not like it's going to succeed or fail. I just did it, which is to say, um, when you're writing dialogue for for drama, for a dramatic book or a play or TV, you always want to maximize the conflict between people. You don't include this uh, conversation in the story at all, unless one person says, you know, like X, and the other says not X. You know, that's what it's all about. And I thought, well, okay, I'm aiming for a higher realism. You know, I don't talk with my friends like that. I don't have fights. You know, we, we're generally on the same team. You know, with your, with your partner or your family, you try to work things out together and figure out what other people are getting at. You know, like it's like you against the world with your friends. And this world that you're struggling against refuses to show its face. You never can figure out what exactly is, is breaking me. What is fucking me up? You know, can I, you can't put your finger on it. You can't. You don't. Know, you can't figure out who it is or what it is. And yet, uh, in your conversations uh, with your friends, you're looking for help and consolation and um, humor and uh, you know reasons to. Be more cheerful about everything that's going wrong. So I, I 
thought I would just have try to have conversations in the book that are more like real conversations to me than, than they are like like these dramatic dialogues that exist to move the story along. Because I think uh, conversations like that can tell you just as much about character. The conflict is always there. Anybody trying to be happy in the world is in a state of constant conflict, but, but it doesn't have to be their interlocutor that's uh, telling them how terrible they are. And when you were writing the book, you know, your novels have continuously gotten slightly longer as your career has progressed. What is what is it specifically that you feel like you can do now that you couldn't do when you first started your career? I think it's just a matter of practice, um, at least for me, uh, keeping that much material straight. Because 420 pages, that's uh, like the manuscript of doxology is just a whole lot of it's a heavy burden for the random access memory of my brain, and it gets really easy to make continuity errors or um, just make mistakes. Uh, and and of course, if you then turn around and actually write a short story, it just feels like falling off a log. It's so easy. <laughs> so I mean, I feel like that's one of the reasons I did it because I, I want to try writing some more short stories, um, and 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 I wanted to make it seem painfully easy. Hmm. The other week I got uh, a request to write some flash fiction, like stories in 150 words. And I was like, oh man, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. This is so easy. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I write in these like, very intense three-week bouts of sitting at the computer, just typing the entire time, like 10 hours a day. Um, and and when I do that, by the time I'm done, I have maybe a 60,000 word draft. So what I did for this book was just do that several times. I planned it out very intricately from the start because I, I don't know if you've read the entire book, but there are really, well, to me, powerful, overarching themes that have to do with the title, which, which has sort of several meanings. So the doxology is a song of praise, but but there's also the doxa, which is the Greek word for those shadows, those illusions in Plato's cave. But because those shadows, um, they're also like a, a halo, like sort of an aura around something. A halo is also called a doxa, so it was also translated as glory. Mm. So that's why these songs where you give glory to God are called, uh, it's called a doxology, which is all very contradictory and I like it. Maybe going back to when we were talking about zines and physical media, um, Sassy plays sort of a, uh, it is an exciting incident, let's say, at the, the beginning of this story. So why Sassy? And I guess was that something that I guess you feel like is of historical note, or was it something more to establish like the flavor of that time? Well, I talked about sassy simply because it's uh, not a zine. 
it was a mass market publication, but yet it has that sort of nimbus of the scene. Mm. People, people I've met who are now a good bit younger than I am, they remember it as a significant moment in their lives when they first got their hands on Pablo Sassy. And at the same time, I, I knew someone at the time who was a toy designer um, and just thought it was really funny that a, a publication for children would have this explicit sexual material and he was like, this one, I gave it six months. <laughs> but I, I don't think I ever saw it. I, I mean, I was pretty old to be reading Sassy. It, it is interesting that they are describing it as the uh, the last gaffes of, of mainstream pedophilia <laughs> and all these and all this sort of like hate, but then also it's like, well, we have to get it if we want to get this song. Like we have to, we have to buy into this thing that maybe we don't like. The reason I described it like that is partly because for me, the whole riot girl movement, which it was associated with, and I was in my early thirties and. You know, sometimes in the anarchist scene, it's really hanging out with people who really were 15. But, but I had already met Bikini Kill fans. And they were men in, in their 30s and 40s who said, Oh my God, you have to see this band with Bikini Kill. She used to work as a stripper and she takes off her clothes. <laughs> and it's really hot. did you get into that scene? I mean, were you trained as a musician or was it something that you became interested in as you saw other, you, you sort of came in contact with other people who were participating in this scene? I had played guitar all my life, um, like campfire songs. <laughs> and uh, when I, I just hooked up with a guy who was an uh, improviser and it was really plain that this was going to be a very good time. So I like, quickly went out and got myself a 100 watt Marshall and uh, Gibson SR71 and uh, started just destroying my ears, basically. Do you still do you still play or do you have an interest with that type of experimentation or is that just like a different part of your life? I mean, I love the sound of a tortured guitar amp. There are a few things I enjoy more than cranking up, cranking it up to where it just seems like it's alive and you can't touch the guitar without getting really beautiful sounds out of the amp. But the truth is, I haven't done it for about 25 years because of my ears. And about 15 years ago, I, um, I discovered like bel canto singing, which is also a very good time. Um, and not quite as loud. I have a clock myself of like 95 decibels, but it's not nearly as bad as, as a Marshall amp. 
Yeah, so now it's the same. Um, it's, uh, I, I, I like making music. I just do. I like reverberating. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 